0: But it's, uh, it's really great to be here, and I will just say, just to begin, just a little bit about, uh, we had the most amazing and wonderful summer. Um, uh, at the time of the riots in London and uh, Birmingham and in other places in England, where a few hundred young people were rioting, uh, we had over 32,000 young people uh, worshipping Jesus uh, in Somerset. It's the most we've ever had. And some of the stories of salvation are absolutely amazing. Uh, young folk that came um, who... I, I just had an email, I think last week, from a youth leader from Dorset, from Paul. And uh, he said that the headline was um, the, the seven atheists. And uh, he said, we brought with our youth group seven atheists. They, we made contact with them. We befriended them. They didn't want to come. Uh, They said, we don't believe in all this nonsense. And we said, look, just come. You don't have to go to any main meetings. There's lots of other fun things to do. You see, these guys, they just do anything to get them there. And he said, they came and they decided to come to the first evening meeting because everyone else was coming. And apparently, as I was introducing it, um, they started heckling. And uh, um, uh, two of them, one of them was shouting out, uh, it's, it's a load of rubbish, except that wasn't the exact words he used. And uh, another one was saying God doesn't exist and, and all of that stuff. And anyway, by uh, night four, uh, four of the seven had given their lives to Jesus. And uh, at the end, all seven said that they were going to come back next year because the three that hadn't yet given in said they were no longer atheists. Uh, that uh, God had done something in them. And as well as many, many stories like that. We've had many stories like that of absolute people who had nothing to do with church, who'd never been to church, who were now right there. Uh, we had some um, amazing healings as, as the young people prayed for each other. Just incredible. I'll just tell you one that I just I love. Um, on the last morning, um, uh, we got the kids to pray for each other anyone who wanted healing for any physical condition to stand up and the others to gather around them. Uh, We didn't, you know, I said, um, uh, you know, we could wait for the anointed man of God to turn up to do it all for us um, in the white suit um, and who would take big offerings, but we can't afford him. So we're just going to have to do it ourselves. And uh, and I said, you're going to have to do it because I'm very tired and I'm not good at praying. And so they did. And, uh, At the end, my colleague Andy, uh, my friend, he was sitting on the side of the stage for anyone who wanted to come up and say what had happened. And there was literally at one point over 50 young people all around Milling wanting to say about how they'd just been healed. And you saw people praying for each other. And then as people got healed, they just started clapping all around the big tent. And there was this one lad came up, 15 years old. He was crying. And he said on Monday, uh, I, was, I was playing football and um, I broke my ankle and they took me to hospital in an ambulance and, um, because it was so painful and they diagnosed it as a broken ankle and look, I'm, I'm, my foot's in the cast that the hospital put me in and I haven't been able to rest my foot on the ground even with the cast. I've been, you know, I've been going on a crutch and, and hopping along and he said, my friends prayed for me, look, he said, look, Look, I don't feel a thing. I've been healed. Now Andy said to him what, what we always say to them. He said, go back to the doctor. Go back to the hospital. Don't do anything rash. Check it out. This kid ignored what Andy said because that night he came back before the meeting started to show Andy the cast that they'd, they'd taken it off. And he said, look, the cast is off and I'm fine. Well, uh, Andy was sharing some, reading out some testimonies and sharing some healings. And then he said about that guy, and he said, where are you? And the kid stood up, and he, he, this lad ran to the front, and he jumped over two people to get to the front. And just to say, look, I'm completely healed. There were so many stories like that, so many stories. And it was just the grace of God, the absolute grace of God. And there are things that, uh, I'll just tell you one more very, very quickly, just very quickly. Um, It was one from the previous year. Um, Last year, um, these three youth leaders from Sutton Coalfield, just north of Birmingham, uh, they bought 15 young people, not one of them a Christian, that they'd made friends with. It was just outside Sutton Coalfield uh, um, uh, on an estate. And uh, they were working in detached youth work. And they made friends with them. They brought them. And they were giving me a rundown through the week of... Uh, I think half, uh, by, by night three, I think um, eight of the 15 had given their lives to Jesus. Uh, just before um, the, the last night, they told me that 12 of the 15 had given their lives to Jesus. At the end of the last night, they came up to me to say, all 15 have given their lives to Jesus. And um, I met one of the youth leaders this year, and he came up to me and he said, do you remember... The, the 15 young people gave their lives to Jesus last year uh, from our youth groups. So I said, "I remember, I, I remember it well." And he said, "I just want you to know, all 15 are back again, going on with Jesus a year later." And that's the bit because you always wonder, "Oh Lord, I hope they, you know, they root." And and that was that was wonderful, wonderful. Anyway, I could go on and on and on, but we won't. Um, I want to really. Um, talk tonight, if I may, about idolatry. Because I believe uh, that we live in an idolatrous generation. It's an idolatrous society. And uh, uh, when we go to, when we look at the people of Israel and we read the, the Old Testament scriptures, we can be a little bit superior as we identify their idols so clearly. Oh my goodness, we can scoff. How could they be so stupid to make idols of wood and gold and, and, and worship those. Oh, dear. And some of us, when we go to other cultures, other societies, uh, we can look around at the idols they worship and I think, oh, my word. They're just not as sophisticated as us. How can they do that? How stupid. And we can be blind to the idolatries in our own culture. We see everyone else's idol except our own uh, because our, our own is, it, because it's part of our culture. Uh, it, we, we have a blind spot. And there is all sorts of uh, idols which our nation uh, worships at. There's uh, the idol of consumerism, obviously. You know, it's uh, uh, how much are you worth is a question. And the answer is in money. If you want to know who I am, look at the label on the back of my shirt is what we say. You know, I shop, therefore I am, is the, is the new mantra. Uh, and... Uh, and we, we go to the shopping malls and we worship there. And they're the, the new cathedrals of the 21st century in our country. And there's nothing wrong with shopping. There's nothing wrong with buying things. But it's when, you know, even some of the words we give these things uh, betray what's going on. You know, I'm going for some retail therapy. That tells you a lot, doesn't it? I'm going for some retail therapy. Then there's, there's the idol of celebrity. Oh, my word, there are people now who are celebrities for no other reason than they're celebrities. No one can remember what they did to become a celebrity, but they are just there. And uh, Andy Warhol uh, prophesied at the end of the 1960s that the day would come when everyone would be famous for 15 minutes. And boy, is that happening. And we worship anyone who's met anyone who's had anything to do with anyone who's remotely famous, we're interested uh we we worship uh, in uh, in all uh, uh, the idol of sex it's gripped our society you you open any magazine you you switch on the tv you, you look at most movies and and what's the subliminal message uh you're you're not a complete human being unless you're having sex with someone and that's what's taught to our teenagers and sex is a wonderful thing so i'm told uh sex is a you know it, it, god it's a gift from God to be used in the context of a committed relationship uh, between a man and a woman. But but we've turned it into an, an, an idol. And uh, for some people, they want to find out who they are in, in, in the context of how attractive am I to someone else. There are all sorts of idolat- idols that we worship. And you know, there's um, probably the first great sex symbol today sex symbols come and go every month because you have to put a new face on the cover of hello magazine you know so you know there's a new sex symbol every month but you know there was a day when a sex symbol used to last for a long time and probably the first sex symbol of the modern era and in my humble opinion still the greatest was a lady called Marilyn Monroe ask your parents about her uh, in, the, in the 50s and early 60s, her image was iconic. Everyone knew. She, her image was the most famous image easily in the Western world. Everyone knew Marilyn Monroe. I think she was actually a brilliant actress. Anyone seen lots, some Like It Hot? I love that movie. And, uh, and all of that. And apparently she had affairs with President Kennedy, Frank Sinatra, and various other people. You would think that Marilyn Monroe had everything. Uh, Marilyn Monroe was regarded as the most beautiful woman on the planet. She had sex appeals. She had celebrity. She had everything. And yet, just before she died of a drugs overdose that was probably suicide, Marilyn Monroe said these words A sex symbol becomes a thing. I hate being a thing. I've never liked sex myself. I don't think I ever will. It seems just the opposite of love. And then she died. It seems just the opposite of love. How tragic. Then, some years later, a few years ago, again, some of you will need to ask your parents about him, one of the most famous human beings on the planet for a while, certainly in youth culture, was a guy called Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen. Uh, he, he wrote and sang songs that were anthemic to a generation, and I think still are, but in many years. And he had it all. He had fame, celebrity, money, the works. And yet, just before Freddie Mercury died of AIDS, he said these words. You can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. And that is the most bitter type of loneliness. Success has brought me worldwide idolization and millions of pounds, but it has prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. And then he died. Probably, the greatest British philosopher of the last fifty years, Mr. Edmund Blackadder, said these words. He said, "Life is like a broken pencil, pointless. And do you know for many? who worship one or other of the modern idols, life really is like a broken pencil. It feels like a broken pencil. The tragedy of this summer for me, in amongst all the joy, has been the number of young people. Do you know one, one evening, at one of the festivals, it just seemed appropriate. I, 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 can't, I, I was thinking, I don't believe I'm doing this. I asked the young people, stand up, come forward. If you your life is so terrible. Everyone, every teenager has bad moments. You know, we all, we, all, you know, just by, <laughs> just to be a teenager is to have ups and downs, hormones, and you know all of that. And uh, but we're not talking about that. I said, you know, if if you if if you're, f- if you're suicidal if you don't know what your purpose is for life, if you're suffering from anxiety attacks, panic attacks, and you just don't want to go back, you've got no hope for the future, Really, I said it really strongly, come forward. I expected 40, 50, 60 maybe to come forward. About 3,000 came forward. About 3,000 in tears, broken. And that's what happens what Jeremiah said. Well the Lord said to Jeremiah, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. When we forsake the spring of living water, we dig broken cisterns. And they never satisfy. But of all the idolatries, of all the idols that we worship in our culture, what is the worst? What is the most pernicious? What is the most evil? What is the most destructive? In my opinion, and I offer it simply as my opinion, the most destructive, the most evil, the most dangerous, the most pernicious idol of the 21st century is individualism. Individualism is killing our society. We live in a world of me, myself and I. We see it everywhere. Everything is couched in me terms. Even the names we give our gadgets betray it. iPhone, iPad, it's all I, I, I. Everything's about me. And we see it everywhere, everywhere we go. We see a society that, is, that has fragmented. I love Australia. I go to Australia four or five times a year. I keep inviting myself back. And Australia, I tell you, is paradise. It's got It's got white sandy beaches to die for. It's got the Great Barrier Reef in northern Queensland, the tropical rainforest coming to the the sea. It's got wide open spaces. It's It's got a beautiful climate. And there's only 20 million of them on a big island that's bigger than the whole of Europe. And best of all, they have got restaurants like you would not believe. Now, you would think Australia is the most amazing place to grow up, the great outdoor life, and yet, the suicide rate amongst teenage boys in Australia is the second highest in the world. And I've been going to Australia for 20 years, and I've worked out why. Because in in that nation that has everything, seemingly everything, They've lost the one thing that matters. In that macho culture, dads, many, don't know how to be dads. And even when they still live in the house, they're absent emotionally. And they don't know how to relate. So there's a whole load of teenage boys who don't know who they are. And I have, every time I go, they sidle up to me. After a while, and they let it out. And they've never told anyone. I'm thinking, why are you telling someone from the other side of the world? You haven't been able... And d- depression anxiety, suicide. We've got, well, I, I can't say it. I've, we've got folk who are with us that have, from Australia, that, that we've brought them over to try and help them because they, that literally they've tried to kill themselves. It's horrific. And in that culture that's macho, that's me culture, you know, people don't know how to relate to each other anymore. They don't know how to do community. They don't know how to live in community. And the tragedy is that has affected the church. That, that culture of individualism we have bought. We recognize a little bit the culture of consumerism. We recognize maybe a little bit more the, the, the idol of, um, of, of, of sexuality or whatever. But you know what? We're blind to the idol of individualism. And so everything's about me. We even read the Bible through individualistic eyes. You know, it's the promises in the Bible for me. Here's God's promise for you. Do you know hardly any of the promises in the Bible are for you or for you or for you? They're for us. God speaks to us. The the greatest character in the Old Testament after God It's not Abraham, it's not Moses, it's not Joseph, it's not David, it's not Elijah. It's Israel. It's a people, not a person. The greatest character in the New Testament after the Lord Jesus Christ is not Peter, it's not Paul, it's not James, it's not John. It's the church. It's a people, not a person. Most of the things that we take from this book as God's individual thing, to me, 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 it's to us. It's to a people. And we've even ended up in the crazy situation where, where people actually, get this. That, uh, my friend Andy uh, uh, met a young lady about a year ago and uh, she, uh, he hadn't seen her at church for a while. And he said to her, I haven't seen you at church for a while. And she said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't like church. I don't get on with church. So I do church on my own at home. And he said, how do you do that? Interested. And she said, Well, on a Sunday morning, after I've got up and got dressed and everything, I have church in my room. And what I do is I put on one of my favorite worship CDs from one of my favorite bands and I worship with that. And then I listen to one of my favorite podcasts from one of my favorite preachers, teachers from around the world. And that, she said, is my church. When I heard that, I wanted to find her and headbutt her. And I wanted to say to her, I wanted to say to her, that is the most selfish thing I have ever heard in my life. After you've worshipped to one of your favourite CDs from one of the best worship bands in the world that no local church could match, and then when you've listened to one of the best talks from one of the best Bible teachers from somewhere in the world that no local church could match... When you've done that, what do you do? Do you invite your dollies to come forward to give their lives to Jesus? Do you lay hands on your teddies that they might be healed? You can't do church on your own. Church, by definition, is a people, not a person. And this, and the reason we're seeing such a rise of anxiety attacks, panic attacks, depression, is we've lost the art of community. There's more of us on this island than there's ever been by a long way and we've never been further apart. And we build walls between each other. And we see that again and again and again and it's resulting in disease. Why is it resulting in disease? Because it's not how we were made. We were created for community. Because we were created in God's image. When, when God created us, do you know after he created us, the first, quest, the first question God ever had to ask in the history of ever, in the history of God, in the history of eternity, the first question he ever had to ask was, where are you? Where are you? Because the moment they, they, they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was, a, it was, it was about independence. We won't need him. And so they hid from him. And what was the second question he asked straight after? Who told you you were naked? The moment they started hiding from God, they started hiding from one another. And that's what the human race has been doing ever since. We hide from God. We always hide from each other. And we don't know how to be vulnerable. We don't know how to be honest. We don't know how to, we don't believe that we'll be accepted as we are. We've, we've lost the art of community. And we are the Facebook generation. Where And I'm not having a go at Facebook. I have five Facebooks. One of which is currently banned. But that's another story. Um, I didn't know anything wrong. Uh, but, but I have, you know, so I'm not, it's, this isn't about Facebook. It's about the culture that sometimes feeds all that we can send a facebook message to someone on the other side of the world that we've met twice telling them i love you i miss you you're of my, my best friends and we can't live properly with the person sitting next to us in the pew or who lives next door to us and we've lost that we we want community without commitment and community without commitment never satisfies because there's no security in community without commitment When it's temporary community and we discard people like we discard old clothes, guess what? We end up insecure because that will happen to us as well. You see, we weren't made for that. We were made in God's image. And God is Trinity. God is community. He is family. And how does this work? Uh, my friend Andy, that I mentioned earlier, who I, I work with, uh, he uh, a little while ago went to his first Orthodox Jewish wedding, and uh, it was friends of his from university who got married. And uh, uh, he was telling me that uh, uh, it was great, but when he arrived, he saw the order of service, the menu. It said after the service there would be a meal, and after the meal they would uh, get rid of all the chairs, and then there would be a time of spontaneous dancing. And Andy was curious, how do you organize spontaneous dancing? Well, after the the ceremony and then the the food and everything, they moved it through. And the, the men all stood this side. And the women all gathered this side. And there was a sense of rising expectancy. And it was just rising excitement. And then they bought this glass. And they put it on the floor in front of the bridegroom. And then there came this moment of hush. And the bridegroom stamped on the glass. And it smashed. And that was... The queue. The whole place went berserk everyone started running round each other, round and round and round in circles. And they started uh, uh, linking arms and chasing round and round and round. And Andy was mesmerized. And he went to the edge of the dance floor. And he stood there on the edge of the dance floor, looking at this scene going, wow. He He thought to himself, I've never seen anything like this. This is madness. This is craziness. And yet somehow they all seem to know what they're doing. And as Andy stood on the edge of the dance floor, some of the guys picked up the bridegroom. Um, he was, um, And they, they, they picked him up and they threw him into the air. And and this guy, he, as they threw him into the air, he went, yeah. And then they caught him. And then they threw Harris into the air again. And this time when they threw him into the air, he went, yeah. And then they caught him. And, and then after a while, Andy was looking. And he suddenly thought, what's happened to Harris? What's happened to the bridegroom? He's disappeared. And then as Andy was standing there on the edge of the dance floor looking for him, he thought, oh my goodness, maybe they're trampling him. What's happened? And as Andy was standing there after a few moments, Harris suddenly reappeared and leapt up in front of Andy, grabbed hold of him and threw him into the center of the dance floor (laughs) where my friend Andy, who is English, and therefore challenged when it comes to movement, had to join in the dance. And after a while, he forgot he was English. And he was running around and whizzing around like the best of them. And he was amazed at what release. He said, I actually enjoyed it. It was great. It was such fun. Do you know that is the best picture I have heard for years of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, of the gospel? Because the gospel tells us this, that you know, when, you know when you live a selfish life, a life for yourself, you expect everyone else to revolve around you. But when you start living for others, you start to revolve around them. You look at any mother, any mum, She's, she, at two o'clock in the morning, if her kid's sick, she's revolving around her kid. At three o'clock in the morning, she's revolving around her kid. At four o'clock in the morning, if she has to, she's revolving around her kid. Would well, you know when the, the first theologians of the church, the early church fathers, when they looked at the doctrine of the Trinity, they didn't simply look at a set of, of, of doctrinal propositions. That was worked out. That was necessary. That's important. But before they looked at that, what they saw was the Father revolving around the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, mate. And the Son in joy and love revolving around the Father and the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit revolving around the Father and the Son. And they gave that a name. They called it perichoresis, which is a fancy Greek word which simply means the dance of love, the dance of joy, the dance of God, dancing round each other. When they looked at the the doctrine of the Trinity, what they saw was an eternal dance of love, of joy. You dance when you love. Joy comes from love. No love, no real joy. It's a fake joy if there isn't love. And that's what the heart of God is. And the heart of God is a dance. It's a dance of joy, a dance of love. And the gospel is this. There came a moment in eternity where the son, the bridegroom, came to the edge of the dance floor to pull us in, to welcome us in. I can't tell you the exact date, but I'm reliably informed it was about 2,000 years ago. I can't tell you the place, but I believe it's a hill outside Jerusalem where Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, came to the edge of the dance floor and on the cross he welcomed us into the dance And do you know that picture is the best picture I've heard of evangelism for years? Because this is what the church is meant to be. This is what the church is meant to do. We are meant to be a people who so live the dance, who so live the life. That others come to the edge of the dance floor and are mesmerized. And some of them start asking, what is going on with them? They look mad. They look crazy. And yet, there seems to be something wonderful and amazing about this. Isn't that what happened on the day of Pentecost? When the Holy Spirit came, they entered the dance of joy. They joined in the dance of love and they spilled out into the streets, declaring the wonders of God in many different languages. A crowd gathered and they were saying, what is going on? Some said they're mad, others said they're drunk. And then Peter got up and he preached the first ever evangelistic sermon in the history of the church. And I shouldn't, in some ways, the first ever evangelistic sermon in the history of the church be seen somehow as a prototype of what evangelistic sermons should be. And do you know the first ever evangelistic sermon in the history of the church began with the words, we're really not drunk. Oh, that we would have to begin our evangelistic sermons today with the words, we're really not drunk, rather than we're, we're really not that boring, or we're really actually quite relevant deep inside. Oh, that we would have to start our, our explanation by saying, no, guys, this is exuberant joy. This is exuberant joy. Do you know so many of Jesus' parables of the kingdom are about feasting, and parties and wedding banquets and all of that stuff. The first first miracle Jesus ever performed at Cana in Galilee, turning water into wine by the gallon, by the liter, in order to say at my wedding feast, the wine won't run out because I, the true bridegroom, am providing the wine in my blood. And it's an invitation to a party. And what have we turned this into? We've turned this into this. If you want to be a Christian, come to the front. Say this prayer after me. Now you've said it. Now if you keep your nose clean, if you don't do anything really terrible, and if you live a fairly boring life for the rest of your life, you'll probably get in. How did we turn the eternal gospel of an invitation to a party that never ends into that? How did we do that? How did we turn good news into fairly boring news? I don't know how we manage it, but somewhere along the line we did. And do you know what the Lord is inviting this world to? He's inviting us back home. Do you know, there's a little, there's a little line in, in, the, in the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told in Luke 15, that, you know, when the older brother came near the father's house, he heard music and dancing. There's music and dancing in the father's house. There's music and dancing. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. He came to set us free. That we should be free indeed. That we should live a life. That we should dance upon injustice. And it doesn't mean that there won't be tears. Because we will weep tears for the loss. But you know what? It's people who are truly alive that know how to weep. It's people who know how to... How, you know what? That, that psychologically, with emotion... If, 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 you, if you stop feeling good things, bad things, you stop feeling good things and vice versa. You can't switch one set of emotions off. We're meant to be a people who are fully alive. fully The glory of God is a person fully alive in all of it. So we weep more than anyone else because we have God's passion in our hearts and we rejoice. We party more than anyone else. And do you know this thing of individualism, it's not new, it's always been there. And it's at this point that I'm going to open the book. You look at, you look at, don't worry, we haven't just started. (laughs) Be at peace. I'm an Anglican, we don't preach long. Uh, um, (laughs) We preach sermonettes. (laughs) And someone once said sermonettes make Christianettes. (laughs) That's why we're, anyway. You know, even even Joseph, I love the story of Joseph. I have been mesmerized recently again by the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph as a young man of 17, he had dreams and the dreams were from God. They were amazing dreams. They were wonderful dreams and they were from God. But do you know, Joseph misinterpreted the dreams completely. Because he was looking at the interpretation of those dreams through individualistic lenses, and he gathered his brothers and his mum and dad, and he said, "You know, you know what? I've had a dreams, two dreams, and what they mean is you're all going to bow down before me, and I'm going to stand upright before you because it's all going to be about me." Idiot! That was not what God said. That was not the interpretation of the dream. Joseph saw it through individualistic eyes. It's all about me. So what did God do? God had to have him go down two pits and serving two masters in order to understand what the dream was really about and so that Joseph could be ready for the true fulfillment of the dream. He went down two pits. First of all, his brothers threw him into one and then he went into one of the deepest dungeons in Egypt and he had to serve two masters, Mr. Potiphar And then Pharaoh. And I just want to read you from Genesis 39. This is when he sold to Mr. Potiphar. Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Hear that. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything with her he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. God's anointing was upon Joseph. God's hand was upon Joseph. And who got blessed? Potiphar. Who got blessed? Potiphar's household. Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house. He didn't get 10% of the blessing. He was a slave. He was a servant. God's... God, God anointed Joseph and it wasn't for him. And then he ended up servant to Pharaoh. God's hand was on Joseph. He interpreted the dreams about the fat cows and the thin cows correctly. He became prime minister of Egypt. And what does it say? It says that Pharaoh became the richest man in the world. He bought up all of the Egyptian land for nothing. He bought up the surrounding areas for nothing. They sold the produce. Who prospered because of Joseph? Pharaoh prospered. Who else prospered because of Joseph? The whole of Egypt prospered. Who else prospered because of Joseph? All the other nations around prospered. They would have been dead if there had been no food. And who else prospered? Joseph's brothers prospered. They'd have been dead in the famine, but because of Joseph, they had food. God's hand was on Joseph, and it was for his brother's benefit that they would prosper. So what was the first lesson Joseph had to learn? He had to learn to serve another man's agenda. It wasn't just about his agenda. He had to learn to serve Potiphar's agenda and Pharaoh's agenda. Question I ask you and I ask myself, is it just about my agenda for my life? Or have I learned to serve other people's agendas? Because the best way for me to receive blessing is to serve other people's agendas and to serve them and to find out where they're at, what their hopes are, what their dreams are, what their longings are, what their concerns are, and pray for them and serve them and love them and give to them. What was the second lesson Joseph had to learn? He had to learn to serve another man's agenda, but he also had to learn to interpret another man's dream. When he was in prison, there was the, um, the baker and the cupbearer. He interpreted their dreams. And then he had to interpret um, Pharaoh's dream. You see, it was no longer up until then. It was, do you know, I had, I had, I've had dreams, dreams for my life. Can I tell you my dreams? My dreams are that I'm going to be an international worship leader. My albums are going to go everywhere. I'm going to be the great evangelist. Oh, God's called me to be rich in the kingdom and in this world. That I may give 10% away. The 10% will be a lot more than it would otherwise have been. Let me tell you my dreams. Can I tell you my dreams? Have you got a few days? Joseph had to move from, here's my dreams, guys, bow down, to, let me learn to interpret your dreams. Let me in turn learn to serve your agenda and interpret your dreams. And you know when Joseph got blessed was when he learned to interpret other people's dreams. And then eventually, when his brothers came to him, ah, oh, I love it, when his brothers came to him and he recognized them, and to cut a long story here, very, very short, because we have to. His brothers, when Joseph said in uh, Genesis 45, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my, brother still, is my father still living? You know his brothers, when they, was, they fell down before him, what did Joseph do? He didn't stand there say, hello boys, remember my dream. (laughs) Payback time. (laughs) Do you know what he did? He wept. He knelt down with them and he wept because it was no longer about him. It was no longer about, listen to what he says. This is amazing. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, and now, and now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Do you know, that, do you know who got sent ahead? Three times Joseph says, God sent me ahead of you, so that because of me you might be okay, you might be safe. Do you know who got sent ahead in those days? The slaves got sent ahead to prepare for the masters. It was the slaves that got sent ahead. And Joseph deliberately chose that phrase that would have spoken of slaves going on ahead of himself. You see how far he moved from, it's all about me, bow down to, I've been sent like a slave, like a servant ahead of you, so that the way might be prepared and so that through me you might be okay. Even though you sold me, God did that. And in the end, Joseph, yeah, he had some riches. He ended up prospering to a large degree, but he had something better. He had a family, he had his family back. Come into land with this one. There's so many examples of this, guys. There's so many examples. Judges 7, great story. The Midianites are going to have a fight with Israel, led by Gideon. And the people of Israel, they gather. He gathers the army. And there's loads, there's loads of Midianites. But um, Gideon manages to gather 32,000 men. Not quite enough. Difficult one, difficult one, but we'll try. 32,000. Maybe we stand a chance. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Can you imagine a general doing that today, you know? If anyone's a bit frightened, you can go home, guys. Oh, heck, (laughs) we've just lost two-thirds of our army. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. Now on first reading of that scripture, you might get the impression that our God likes good table manners. He is upper middle class. You know, it's like, wait a minute, I'm not going to use, you know, the, like dogs. I mean, for goodness sakes, they don't know their knives from their forks. They don't use napkins, they're disgusting. And that the Lord just wants to use people who have refinement, you know, Yes, 2003, good year, good year. If you think that, you got it completely wrong. What was the point of that? The point was this. There were just 300 men who, even though they were thirsty and they were desperate for drink, and the quickest way to get water in their mouths was to put their heads right in while they were drinking, they were looking out for their brother's backs in case their brothers got attacked. While I'm drinking, I'm going to watch out for you. And God said, I'll defeat Midian with 300 men who love each other, care for each other, are for each other, stand together. Then I will with 32,000 individuals when it's all about me. And God hasn't changed his mind That's why he's not going to raise up five individuals who are going to be so super anointed that they're going to win the world. He's going to raise up an army, a church, a people, and it's us, ordinary people like us. God wants to use us for his glory, for his glory. Now, do you know, I come into land with this. I've watched this over the years. You know, the places that God has used and the the ministries that God has used the most powerfully in an ongoing way, they've just about all been places where it's been community, where it's not been one lone individual doing it all. It's been people who have served together and loved together. Um, I don't know what you think about Hillsong... I love those guys. I'm not sure I agree with everything they teach or everything they do, but I love those guys. I've met them. I know them. I love them. They, they're reaching people. And do you know, when I went to Hillsong, I had the privilege of going to speak at their conference in Sydney a few years ago, and I wanted to find out what's the secret. Is it Darlene? <laughs> is it? What is it? And do you know, I kept meeting people. There was this one guy, he, he, old man, he introduced himself. I said, how long have you been here? He said, oh, I'm an elder here. I've been with Brian from the beginning. We've been friends since we were kids. I met someone else. Oh, Brian and I, we go back years. We, we, I'll, I'll stand with him till I die. And there's a whole bunch of people. I'm very close. I love Holy Trinity Brompton. The church that likes to say ya. <laughs> you know, it's... They're an amazing bunch, and they're, they're exploding. Do you know they're planting, they're planting a church a month right now? Do you know, you know they've, got, they've got, can you believe this? They have got now on their staff 300 curates, 300 assistant pastors that are all there to be sent out to plant churches all over the country. And there's now 5,000 in the church. They, I mean, it's, it's growing like crazy. It's ridiculous. And I keep, I, I've been in places where I've, I've had conversations with people and people saying, what's the secret of HTB? And I, it's hilarious hearing what some people say. I know the secret of Holy Trinity Brompton. They've got some mega rich people who got the money and they put it in and that's why they can do everything. Now, I know those people. They're my friends. They have got some mega rich people. I've been in some of their houses. flipping heck. It's amazing. They got bathrooms bigger than my house. It's ridiculous. But you know what? I've watched it. That's not the secret. That's not the secret. And then other people say, I know what the secret is. There's these two women at the heart of the church, behind the scenes, who run it administratively tight ship. And they've been taken from top secular companies and... That's what it is. It's they're just administratively unbelievable. And you know it's true. There are these two women. I've met them. They scare the hell out of me. And they are they run everything. When one of them phones me or sends me a message, I reply immediately. But you know I've watched it, that's not the secret. Do you know what the secret is? I'll tell you what I believe the secret is. Nicky Gumbel is now the vicar of that church. Sandy Miller was the previous pastor, vicar of that church. And on when Sandy was retiring, I went to have coffee. I invited myself around for tea, um, which I do. And uh, and I asked him, what's the secret of how this church has been going, you know, kept going and kept the vision for so long? Tell me, and I thought he'd tell me all sorts of things. We pray, and they do, and we're in the word, and they are, and we witness, and they do, and you know, all that stuff. But you know what he said? He said, if there's, it's the grace of God, but if there's one human reason, he said. For the last 19 years, Nikki Gumble has been my curate. He's been my assistant pastor for 19 years. Now I know none of you you guys probably wouldn't know an Anglican church if it hit you in the face. So I need to explain to you about ang- Anglicans just a little bit. Right a curate in an Anglican church is an assistant vicar. So you get put there for 2 years to learn how to lead a church and then you get your own church. In an ang- in the Anglican situation if any if someone stays a curate for 19 years it means they're useless. Everyone knows they're useless. If you're a curate for 19 years, flipping it, what's wrong with them? And Sandy said, Nikki has been my curate for 19 years, and people who have visited the church, usually from America, they can't understand it because he's gifted and he runs Alpha and and all of that. And and they they ask, they say, why is he still here? Why hasn't he gone and started Nikki Gumble Ministries Inc? And Sandy said, He's been loyal to me, faithful, serving for all that time, and that's the secret. Do you know what the secret is? I'll tell you the other secret. Years ago, years ago, there was a student at Cambridge University called Nikki Lee who became a Christian. The first thing he did when he became a Christian was he went to his best friend, Nikki Gumbel, and he led him to the Lord. And then they made friends with another student at Cambridge called Ken Costa. And they led him to the Lord. And those three friends, they said to each other, wouldn't it be fun if we ended up in the same church and we had an adventure together and served the Lord? So when they left Cambridge, they found themselves at Holy Trinity Brompton. And they joined a home group that was led by the then curate, Sandy Miller. And in that home group, they dreamed dreams. And they said, what if we started an evangelistic thing with food? We could call it A. And Nikki Gumbel, you, you should do that. Well, I better get ordained so I can do that. And then what if we started a thing for families and marriages? Nikki Lee, why don't you and your wife do that? And then Ken Costa thought, all this sounds like it's going to be expensive. I better go and earn some money. And he's one of the mega rich people in that church. (laughs) Do you know? They're still together now. Those three men pray together every week. They serve together. They love together. They share together. Their kids are best friends. That's the secret. That's the secret. It's about a community. And I finish with this, I promise. In my little world, in my little world, do you know, I wouldn't have been able to do this for the years I have. And I'm becoming one of the oldest youth workers in the world now. I'm 53. Why I'm still doing this, I don't know, but I would never have survived. You know, there's people who have been with me for 27 years 27 years we've served together. I can't get rid of them. There's this couple, Ken and Jeannie Morgan. Wherever I go, they follow me. You know, it's like, and they've seen the worst of me. They've seen me at my worst, and they're still there. Do you know what security that is? I have brothers and sisters. I have friends who, it's just amazing. And we do it together, and it's such fun. And even the ones who have left, like Matt and Beth, I was with them last week. You know, Matt was in my youth group when he was 13 years old, Matt Redman. And I've got got the joy now. I'm godfather to all five of their kids. And I talk to their kids all the time. And I tell their parents how they should bring them up. And I interfere. It's wonderful. (laughs) And the same with others, the Hughes' and others. You know, what keeps me going is I'm doing it with others, we're community, we're family. And you know what? There's a joy in that. There's a joy in that. There's, it's, it's perichoresis. It's joining in the dance of God. And it gives glory to Him. It gives glory to Him. We love Him and we love each other. Does that mean it's always easy? Mm-mm. Does that mean it's always exciting? Mm-mm. Sometimes you have to change nappies. Sometimes you have to load the dishwasher. But you know what? There's nothing more fulfilling, nothing more wonderful. Because it is, it is the nature of God. Now, you in this church, you've had your ups and you've had your more interesting times. But you're together and you're here and you're family. Ordinary people who are committed to each other. Keep going. Keep together. God will do miracles through your relationships. I can never be a true representation of Jesus. You can never be a true and complete representation of Jesus. But me and you together, our relationship can begin to show what God is like. That's how it works. That's how it works. I could go on and on and on, but I've landed. We're at the gate. The door is about to open. Why don't we ask the Lord to meet with us? It's a privilege to be here. I love you guys. I really do. You know, I don't have to hang out with you to get the vibe. And uh, yeah, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to to do whatever he wants. Now don't get religious on me. We're just going to relax in the paddock. And Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you send your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, would you meet with us now? Would you guide us? Would you lead us in this time? Would you refresh your people? Would you bring healing, fresh vision, fresh anointing to us? Would you teach us, Lord, how? How to serve others' agendas and interpret others' dreams that we might be like servants and be sent on ahead to prepare the way Just as Jesus, you did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But you emptied yourself, taking the very nature of a servant. And you were sent on ahead of us. You were sent on ahead of us. And you're our King and our Lord of glory and we bow before you.